Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. I don't know the first thing about investing my money, and it is all so overwhelming, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I love that Acorns makes it so easy, and how you don't need a lot of money to get started. So head to acorns.com creepers, or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid non-client endorsement may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com creepers. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC, Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. I'm feeling it tonight. I'm feeling like I'm I'm firing on all cylinders. Firing on all cylinders. What have you been up to this weekend? Uh, watching the World Series. Oh my God, the Astros won the World Series. Do you know that some schools have canceled school tomorrow? Yeah, Not for mine, sure. Though. A lot of them do. Oh, they didn't. No, they just said we can wear jeans. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mo Gap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Could you wear flip-flops in high school? Yeah. We could, too. And I remember the, like, absolute agony when your old Navy flip-flop would break. (laughs) (laughs) Because sure enough, someone always flat tired you. And it was, like, first period, and you're like, well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you're just dragging your foot for the rest of the day. Yeah, and now I'm like, why didn't the high school just have, like, three extra pair of $1 Old Navy flip-flops on hand? Like, they were $1. They ran through those three. Yeah, probably. (laughs) And if you want more of that amazing content, (laughs) you can head over to our Patreon where we've got like something like 13 or 14 bonus episodes now. Wow. We've got like 30 plus mini creeps, which are like shorter episodes that we do a couple times a month. You can head over there for that. At the $5 level, you do get an extra bonus episode every single month and you get a shout out on the podcast. And at the $7 level, you get all of that, plus the mini creeps and a sticker with a a card with a sticker in it with our autographs. And then we also have a $10 level where you can get all of that and a discount on merch and ad-free episodes. And I usually put them up like the night before. So that's not always guaranteed, but unless I forget, like I feel in it. (laughs) Yeah. So head over to patreon.com slash true crime creepers. That is a just a really amazing way to help support the podcast. So okay. Well, I'm very excited to get into this week's episode. Today we're talking about what happens when a bunch of airhead bodybuilders hopped up on steroids decide that the best way to get rich is through kidnapping and murder. Oh. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Big thanks to Pete Collins for his 1999 three-part series in the Miami New Times titled Pain and Gain, which Michael Bay later turned into the 2013 Mark Wahlberg film of the same name. I thought you were going to say like a porno. (laughs) (laughs) No. I don't know who Michael Bay is, though, so... Michael Bay, he he did like Transformers and he any movie that has like oh, big oh, explosions oh. in it, that's him. Yeah. <laughs> My point exactly. Yes. This is part one, but part two is available right now at all levels on the Patreon. Mark Schiller thought he had normal people problems. The pump on his swimming pool was broken. His Schlotzky's franchise was failing and he was trying to sell it. A tropical storm had been threatening to come into Miami, which is where he lived. 
And he was worried that he wouldn't get through his work as a CPA in time to take his wife and his kids to Columbia to celebrate Hanukkah. What Mark did not know was that he had been the victim of at least eight kidnapping attempts. What? On Halloween of 1994, his would-be kidnappers planned to wear ninja outfits, trick-or-treat in his neighborhood, and then grab him, (laughs) but they got tied up at a strip club that night. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I love the story already. (laughs) Another night, Mark was driving through his usual rush hour traffic on the Palmetto Expressway, and he didn't notice the burgundy Ford Astro van that was trying to catch up to him to grab him in his car. Mark decided to take a different exit that night, thwarting his kidnappers. Another day, Mark was at his home in his gated community when, unbeknownst to him, in the early pre-dawn hours of the morning, three men dressed in black and wearing gloves and military camouflage makeup crawled across his front lawn, waiting to nab him when he came out to get his morning paper. But a car drove by and they got scared and ran off, screaming, Abort! Abort! (laughs) Like they I thought were you were going to some... say they fell asleep, which is what I was hoping for. <laughs> no. They were screaming, abort, abort, like they were on some secret mission for the government. It seemed their prey would not be so easy to catch. Okay, they're not even At... trying that hard. <laughs> they think they're trying really hard, and he's just like, not try letting them catch one him. one time. He just has no idea. At 9 a.m. on Thursday, November 14th of 1994, Mark was trying to pull out of the alleyway by his Schlotsky's Deli franchise when a Toyota Camry came and parked right behind him, blocking his exit. He laid on the horn for an entire minute before the Camry finally left. But it wasn't the horn that scared the Camry off. No, the Camry was waiting for its backup, who'd called to say that they couldn't get their vehicle to start. And Mark, none the wiser, drove off home. (laughs) Oh my gosh, his life is so normal to him. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The kidnappers tried seven times in total to kidnap Mark Schiller, only to be thwarted at every attempt. Morale for the kidnappers (laughs) was getting low, but they weren't giving up. Not yet. I don't know why, but (laughs) I like them, and I know I should not. You won't after a while. I'm sure, but they are like, it's like a little Tom and Jerry cartoon, you know? Right. Or like the Coyote and the Roadrunner. I know. It sure starts off that way. This wouldn't be Mark's first foray with a kidnapping situation. In 1989, he'd been living in Colombia, and his boss had been kidnapped and held for ransom by the Army of National Liberation, or the ELN which was a guerrilla group that would attack foreign-owned pipelines and foreign employees living in Colombia. Mark wasn't from Colombia. He was actually from Argentina, but his family had emigrated to the United States when he was four, and he'd grown up in New York City. But he'd been a comptroller for a U.S.-owned oil pipeline in Bogota, Colombia, and that's Mm. where he met and married his wife, Diana. Oh my gosh, this is like an episode of 90 Day Fiancé, and I've watched so many of them in Bogota. (laughs) Oh. After his boss's kidnapping, the U.S. employees were sent back to the U.S., and so Mark and Deanna moved to Miami. And they built a good life for themselves there. They had kids, and Mark set up a medical billing business that did very well, and the family became millionaires. He bought the Schlotzky's franchise, and he also dabbled with a nutritional supplements company. Mark thought his biggest problem was this failing Schlotsky's franchise. He was trying to sell it, and he'd arranged for a prospective buyer to meet him at the deli, but the buyer never showed, and around 4 p.m., he decided he wasn't going to wait anymore. So he walked across the parking lot toward his forerunner when the kidnappers struck again. I mean, 90s was like prime Schlotsky's time, though. Mm, You know? mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a supplement is probably Herbalife, you know, like he's thriving right now. <laughs> right. Mm. Three men ran up, grabbed him, and stunned him with tasers. Mark thought he was being robbed. He screamed at them to take his watch, to take his money, to take his car. But they just continued to tase him and punch him. The kidnappers dragged him to the van and forced him inside. One of them jammed a gun against his head and told him to keep his eyes shut, and the van started to drive, quickly hitting that rush hour traffic. 
Mark's head was pressed to the floor of the van and two men shackled his ankles and then handcuffed his wrists and then wound duct tape around his head to cover his eyes and his ears. They took his presidential Rolex off his wrist, his wallet out of his back pocket, and his Star of David necklace from his neck. On this drive, the kidnappers laughed at him. They taunted him for being Jewish. They kicked him. Mm, I hate them. I hate them. Yeah, they're not great. They kept asking him why he was taking food out of a baby's mouth. Why he was allowed to have so much while they had so little. And they continued to tase him in his right heel. They brought him into a warehouse where the torture continued. They beat him. They pistol whipped him. They played Russian roulette with a gun against his temple. They burned him. Mark found it very ironic that he'd left Colombia with his family to avoid this very situation. The kidnappers forced him to make phone calls following scripts that they'd written. He called his wife, telling her to get the kids, get out of the house, and go to her family in Colombia. She obeyed, terrified, which was a big relief to Mark. At least they were safe. But now the kidnappers had an empty house, primed for pilfering. He also called business associates and told them he'd fallen in love with a smoking hot Cuban woman named Lillian Torres, and he was leaving his family and his business and he was cashing out all his assets to run away with her. The kidnappers also had him sign documents, tons of documents. Mark still had the duct tape around his head, so tight that it was making him bleed, and he couldn't see what he was signing. But he could hear through the duct tape, and one of the voices had a New York accent with a lisp like Mike Tyson. It was a voice he'd heard before, the voice of a guy named Danny Lugo the general manager of Sun Gym in Miami. Huh. Sun Gym, which opened in 1987 just north of Miami, was for serious bodybuilders only. All others need not apply. All the ads for Planet Fitness, you know, the ones that tell you you shouldn't yeah. be intimidated at the gym. This They're is not exactly here. the kind of gym they were talking about. This is a Everyone meat locker here, in here. Correct. Everyone here was super ripped, thanks in part to the illegal steroids that you could find in the locker rooms. If you weren't interested in gigantic muscles, this was really not the place for you. But, <laughs> uh, you know, The Rock was in this movie, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Got it. But Planet Fitness knew what it was doing business-wise, and Sun Gym, it seems, did not. Well, yeah. <laughs> a Gold's Gym complex had opened in Miami Lakes, and all the people who were not built like a refrigerator were taking themselves there, where they found it much more welcoming. <laughs> Sun Jim was losing clients and finding themselves in some financial difficulties, which is interesting because the gym had actually been opened by an accountant from Miami named John Meese, who'd started bodybuilding while he was in college at Texas A&M while he earned his accounting degree. I don't feel like I've ever seen one bodybuilder that went to Texas A&M. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just like not yeah. there. No. I don't know. I'm not picturing that there. It's not the, the image that I, yeah. Yeah. But it seems that John was a lot better at bodybuilding than he was at accounting. He'd even won the title of Mr. United Kingdom in 1962 while he was stationed in England in the, with the Air Force. Mm -hmm. His biceps were over 19 inches. He tried to compete for Miss America and he was accepted into the pageant. Do they call okay. those pageant? Competition? Pageant? Into the competition. I'm going pageant. <laughs> but the Air Force wouldn't let him do it. And I'm not being totally fair to John. He actually was a good accountant. He was the president of his own successful accounting firm. And even occasionally, he taught accounting theory at a few universities in Miami. But John decided to pursue his passion, and he opened Sun Gym to appeal to the wide world of bodybuilding competitions. His dream was to be known worldwide as the place to go to train. For that, he would need help, and it seems that John hired employees based more on their physical acumen than on whether or not they would be a good worker. Right. One of his managers had gone on vacation and been arrested in Louisiana with massive amounts of cocaine and amphetamines in his oh. car. Another was an ex-cop who had quit Sun Gym and then executed three drug dealers in the Everglades. <gasps> oh, these are seedy characters. <laughs> yeah. 
He also had employees that stole from the gym. It wasn't great. Now, I know some people in the bod- on the bodybuilding world, mostly all women. Me too. I was just about to say, I know three, <laughs> and I feel like that's like a, a larger number. Yeah, and they're all some of the most like fantastic people I know. Wanting Same. big muscles is not a bad thing, and I don't want it to come across like I'm saying that it is. But the way that the culture at Sun Gym was, it seems like a lot of people that worked there were very problematic. A police officer said that he could meet his monthly quotas of felony arrests if he just walked into Sun Gym and ran background checks on the people working out there, which I think he's it's interesting that he's admitting to having monthly quotas. <laughs> yeah. I think the most interesting part of that statement. <laughs> Wait, is that not supposed to be a known thing? They say there's not a quota, but no. we all know there's a quota. <laughs> there's a quota. There's always a quota. OK. In 1994, when our story starts. The gym was struggling big time. And not only that, he'd been focusing so much on the gym that his accounting firm was going under too. Apparently, bodybuilding contests often conflict with tax season, and he'd already <laughs> lost a ton of clients and even a what partner a problem at his firm. To have. <laughs> John had been thinking of shutting the whole thing down for a few years and just chalking it up as a bad investment. Enter Danny Lugo. Danny was 30 years old from New York. He had an ex-wife named Lillian that he was still close friends with and four children that he and Lillian had adopted. <gasps> Lillian Torres. Lillian Torres. Mm. All the kids were relatives of Lillian's that they'd adopted after several family tragedies. Good job picking up on that. I mean, I've been here. But most importantly, Danny knew he could turn the gym around. He approached John with tons of ideas that were sure to bring in more customers and more money. They'd develop a clothing line, a vitamin line, put in a juice bar, oh. teach karate. And Danny was... <laughs> this is screaming 90s. Remember every kid had to go to karate after school? Yes. Like Bushy Bond would come pick them up. Oh, they still do that. Yeah, we have kids that like go to karate after school. And Danny was working on computer software that would make it easier to monitor membership payments. But most importantly, Danny was 6'2", 230 pounds, and he had the physique that John looked for in his employees. Who cares that Danny had just gotten out of prison for swindling people out of about $70,000? That's how he gets owed. the physique. Prisoners are in the best <laughs> right. shape of their lives, obviously. Right, which he now owed as restitution. He'd pretended his name was David Lowenstein and preyed on people that couldn't get conventional loans. He'd placed ads in the Miami Herald for anyone seeking venture capital and said that he was an agent for a bank in Hong Kong that was looking to invest in American small business owners and entrepreneurs. All you had to do was pay an advance fee to purchase insurance for the loan, and the money was yours. People would pay the fee and never receive the loan. How much was the fee? I don't know, but it was enough for him to get $70,000 out of people. I don't know how many people. Mm. Miami wasn't the first place that he'd worked his con. He'd also done it in Oklahoma, where his victims lost $230,000. In May of 1990, he was arrested at a health club in Kendall, which is a suburb of Miami, and he ended up pleading guilty to fraud. Like most con artists, Danny was charming as hell. He had a very dynamic personality, and he was able to bring in a lot of new clients to Sun Gym. He started off as a personal trainer, and then soon he was promoted to general manager. Danny's best friend was a 22-year-old named Noel Dorball. Might be Noel, but he went by Adrian, and he was a steroid <laughs> freak. Adrian. Hey, Adrian. He was described as being like five foot seven tall and five foot seven wide, and he would do anything and everything that Danny told him to. He was the cousin of Danny's new wife, Lucretia, and he'd come to the States from Trinidad a few years before. When Danny got the general manager position, Adrian was working as a fry cook at Fiesta Taco, and mm. Danny hired him on part time at Sun Gym. And he must have been really, really, really good with finances because in January of 1994, as a fry cook and working part time at Sun Gym as a trainer with just two clients, he invested a million dollars in a Merrill Lynch mutual fund account. Okay. But 
Of course, the money did not come from his work at the gym or at Fiesta Taco. It came from that time Danny and this other weightlifter at the gym got into the fine field of Medicare fraud. They created a bunch of fake medical companies, rented dozens of mailboxes, and then bought names, social security numbers, birthdays about actual people on Medicare, and started submitting fake claims to the government for medical services that were never and they provided. Would get checks. Mm-hmm. How are you just buying someone's social security card number? On the black web, I Yeah, think. but like, how do I get to the black web? Like, do I go to you, Google and like type in no, black you, web? No, you need a special program or you can't access it. I'm going to Google black web. Just see what happens. Okay, you can't get on it from Google. Chrome doesn't support the dark web. Hmm. So, so sorry. It's like the Diagon Alley of the internet. No, what's the yes. bad one? Nocturne Alley. Exactly. It's the nocturnality of the internet. (laughs) Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. His partner ended up terrified of Danny after he'd heard about after he'd heard him talk about hiring a hitman to kill a former partner of his. And so Danny kept most of the money and deposited it into the fund under Adrian's name, since he still owed $70,000 in restitution that he had no interest in paying. Yeah, come on, Danny. Danny started training a guy named Jorge Delgado. He was like a skinny, wiry guy who was suddenly interested in becoming a bodybuilder. And they started spending a lot of time together. At the time, Jorge worked for Mark Schiller, our kidnapping victim from the beginning. Mark had agreed to take Jorge on at his company as a sales rep after Jorge's wife, Linda, had come to him with this sob story about how Jorge was struggling. Mark hired him and was really happy with him. Jorge was a really hard worker and always willing to do anything that needed to be done. Okay, wait, I'm really struggling right now. 
I know I say this every time, but a chart would have been ideal. Okay. Who, who's working for who? Who? So Jorge has started working out at Sun Gym with right. Danny Lugo, and he works for Mark Schiller, our kidnapping victim from the beginning. But Danny is working under Mark because now he's the general no, manager. No, Jorge's the... working under Mark. I know, but who is, is, who's Danny work for? Okay, so we've got Mark Schiller, who all these people were trying to kidnap. Okay, he's separate. Yeah. Then we've got Sun Jim. John Meese yeah. is the owner of Sun Jim. Danny Lugo works for John. Adrian is a personal trainer at Sun Jim, but he's buddies with Danny. And Jorge is now wanting to become a bodybuilder and is working out with Danny. Okay, I love how you say that. Like, it's not a little bit confusing, though. Jorge <laughs> also works for Mark Schiller, the kidnapping victim. Okay. Okay. So Mark had hired him. He was a great worker. Over the years, as Mark's company grew and prospered, his prosperity was passed down to his employees. He bought Jorge a new car. He also helped him buy his first house. Later, Mark started working out of his house, and Jorge basically became like a member of the family. He was at the house every single day. He became friends with Mark's wife, Diana. He knew every single one of the ins and outs of Mark's life. When they went on vacation, he was the guy who would house sit. He knew the alarm codes. He was on <gasps> oh, his Jorge. in case of emergency list at the alarm company. Mark trusted Jorge completely, but he shouldn't have. Oh, I dang it. I know. Once Jorge started spending time with Danny, it was like you'd never see one without the other. Jorge had brought Danny over to Mark's house several times. And Mark did not like Danny. There was something inherently untrustworthy about Danny, and he seemed very manipulative. Mark tried to talk to Jorge about it, but he'd always get really defensive. And Mark just didn't notice how much Jorge was changing. When Mark decided to open the Schlotzkys, Jorge seemed to think that he'd be involved in the deal for some reason, and he resented it when he wasn't included in this deal. Like he wanted to work there or just like be consulted or? I think he wanted to like be part of the investment or something. Hmm. Like, no, I don't think he wanted a job. I think like he wanted like to be in this deal and get money. Hmm. So Mark decided to make it up to Jorge by offering to start a company with him that would buy and sell mortgages. Mark knew a guy that did it very successfully and had even helped manage the business for him. So he knew how to do it. He thought it could be a good deal. And Jorge was really excited about this. And they agreed on the amount of money that they'd each put into it. But the next time Mark saw Jorge, he insisted on cutting Danny into this deal, into this new company. No. Danny, who had bragged about frauds and cons that he'd committed in front of Mark. So Mark was like, absolutely no way am I getting involved in any kind of business yeah. deal with that guy. Also, maybe that's what he should say to Jorge. Like, this is why I don't trust him. Right. And I think he had been kind of telling him that. And Jorge would just get really defensive about Danny. But yeah. Mark still had his trust in Jorge. And so they started this business together. But then Jorge started being real shady. He started working with Danny on some things. And he was depositing way too much money in the bank. And when he was confronted by a bank employee about it, he went completely white and refused to answer where the money came from. So when Mark pressed him about it, he said it was none of his business. And Mark tried to warn Jorge to stay away from Danny, and he was so shocked and sad that Jorge had transformed so completely into this person that he didn't know. I don't understand when people become, like, bad guys or they, like, do shady stuff and then it's like, they turn completely white. It was all over their face. They passed out. I'm like, you didn't think this was going to like, you've got to be able to lie through your teeth. Like, what's your move? Yeah. You know, oh, I just I went to deposit 50 grand. I just got white in the face and didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, I think some people like talk a big game. And then when they have to actually like put their money where their mouth is, they can't. So Mark told Jorge that he was pulling out of the business. He didn't want to get dragged into anything that Danny Lugo was a part of. And Jorge was pissed. Before Jorge met Mark, 
he and his wife had been living with her parents. Now he had a nice house. His wife, Linda, didn't have to work. They were planning on starting a family. All of this is because of Mark. But apparently that didn't mean anything to Jorge Delgado. He's greedy. Yeah. Not too long after, Danny approached a few other guys that worked out at the gym. This is Carl Weeks and Stevenson Pierre. Both were immigrants. Carl Weeks was from Barbados and Pierre was from Haiti. Weeks struggled with addictions to alcohol and crack. He'd been involved in house burglaries as well as armed robberies of drug dealers. But when he was 30, he'd gone to rehab, he'd gotten clean, he became a Christian, and he wanted to turn his life around. But he was struggling financially. He was barely getting by on welfare. So he'd come to Miami to stay with Pierre, who was his girlfriend's cousin, and he thought that he could help Weeks start over. Oh my God, I'm never going to keep track of all these people. Girlfriend doesn't have a name. No. Okay. Do you want a name? Sarah. No. Oh, no. no. Do, you, do you want another name? <laughs> I want something spicier than Sarah. <laughs> Pierre had once been a credit analyst and skip tracer for American Express in New York City and now worked at Sun Gym in Miami as a back office manager in the weights room. Carl was hopeful that Pierre could get him a job there, but neither guy had that refrigerator build that Danny Lugo <laughs> was looking for, so it was a no-go. It's like a Hooters. They're not meeting the appearance requirements. (laughs) Right, exactly. And then Pierre got laid off too, and he had to take a job in Little Haiti at his father's dry cleaning shop. And then Danny called with an offer. He asked the two of them if they'd like to make $100,000 for two days of work. He told them that a very bad man named Mark Schiller had stolen $200,000 from him and another $200,000 from gym member Jorge Delgado, and they needed help getting it back. They'd kidnap him, beat him, make him confess to stealing the money, make him give it back, plus everything else he owned, and then maybe kill him. Yeah, you're not interested in that job. That's a hard No, yeah. Carl immediately felt like this was the kind of stuff he'd left New York to avoid, and Pierre wondered why Danny and Jorge didn't just talk to Mark Schiller about the money. They had another meeting a few days later, this time with Adrian Dorball and Jorge Delgado. Jorge explained that he knew every single detail about Mark's life, his daily routine, the codes to his house, his personal life, everything, and that Mm. kidnapping him would be a piece of cake. And of course, it wasn't a piece of cake. They tried (laughs) seven times to kidnap him before they managed it. Yeah, those attempts are honestly embarrassing. A hundred percent. And they only managed it because they got another guy, Mario Sanchez, who was nicknamed Big Mario on account of being so big. He was 6'4", 270 pounds, and a licensed private detective in Florida. But his detective business wasn't going so great, and he was now working as a bouncer at a club. He was under the impression that they were collecting money from a drug dealer that owed Danny money. And that all he'd have to do was stand there and look big and mean and he'd get $1,000. Big Mario, you know that's not the case because all of these men are big and look scary. (laughs) Well, he's the biggest. The next biggest is Danny, who's two inches shorter and like 40 pounds less. And then there's Adrian is kind of is kind of big. He's five, but he's five, seven. He's five, seven. Wide and five seven tall. I should have made you do and a then, lineup instead of a and then Jorge chart. Delgado. <laughs> and then Jorge Delgado is a scrawny little guy that decided he wanted to get into weightlifting. So they're not all big. Jorge or uh, M- Mario is is much bigger than all of them. It's like The Rock versus Mark Wahlberg. You know, like <laughs> Mark Wahlberg Mario. is like swollen, but he's not The Rock. <laughs> and Mario really needed this $1,000. So you're right. He probably did know on some level that it, that it wasn't exactly the truth. But he wanted to get his son a nice present for Christmas. So Aww, he really Mario. needed this $1,000. I know. So they finally managed to kidnap Mark Schiller, who had done nothing except be rich and help Jorge Delgado. Like, those are his crimes. Mark figured out while he's sitting there all blindfolded with the duct tape, 
He figured out that there were at least four men that were holding him, and he knew one of them was Danny Lugo, which meant he automatically knew that Jorge Delgado had to be involved, especially after it became clear that his kidnappers knew his alarm code that no one else knew. And he also figured that he was probably being held at the warehouse that he knew Jorge had, and he was right. The kidnappers all had nicknames. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Oh my god, this is the best part. You know I love this. Danny was Boss, or Batman. Adrian was Robin. And Adrian would come to babysit Mark in like the late afternoon. Carl Weeks was Sparrow. And Pierre was Napoleon. (laughs) And Pierre had actually left the gang, but he'd rejoined after Danny and Adrian had threatened his son's life. So Carl and Pierre, a.k.a. Sparrow and Napoleon, handled the graveyard shift, and they were Mark's favorite captors. They were the Okay, only we can't ones- also be doing nicknames because I just got a list of their real names. <laughs> <laughs> so they were the only ones, Carl and Pierre, to show any kindness to Mark, the only ones to give him food or water. When Mark told Carl that the duct tape was excruciatingly painful, Carl had put like a thin pad under the duct tape on his nose. The Sun Gang had hoped to hold Mark for a couple of days, but it was a month before they were able to convert his assets. A month of being handcuffed to a pipe in a small bathroom. A A month? month of torture. A month of having his head wrapped in duct tape. The whole time. A month. That's insane to me. I know. All the while, they'd moved into his nice house. They'd changed the pool contract to their name. They were throwing parties there. They were taking his furniture and putting it in their own apartments. They were wearing his jewelry, driving his Viper, driving his Mercedes. And they eventually managed to get everything from him, including his Swiss and Cayman Islands accounts, which totaled $1.26 million in cash and assets. They'd also had him sign over a $2 million life insurance policy, making the beneficiary Danny's ex-wife, Lillian. The Sun Jim gang had toiled over how best to kill Mark. Okay, wait. I'm sorry. Where are Mark's neighbors? You mean to tell me that someone that doesn't look like Mark is driving around his Viper and no one's like, oh, that's weird. I don't know that guy. We get into that at some point. They explained it away. They thought that Mark and his family had moved out and these were their new neighbors. So the Sun Jim gang had toiled over how best to kill Mark. They decided the best way to kill him would be to get him completely blacked out, wasted, and then send him off in his forerunner and stage a car crash. Jorge thought they should kill him before putting him in the car and then just stage the crash by dumping the car somewhere. Adrian said that he could strangle him if they went that route. But Danny wanted that life insurance money right away, and so it was important that the body be discovered quickly. So they told Mark the plan was to take him to the international airport and send him off to Columbia to see his family. They said that Danny had a friend in customs who would get him on a plane, but they needed to make sure that he was so drunk that he couldn't ID the the man later. That's how they, like, convinced Mark to get drunk. Mm -hmm. And Mark knew that it was a lie because he'd been forced to call his attorney, Gene Rosin, and grant Jorge power of attorney in the sale of the Schlotskys. Okay. Jorge had even so gone to Rosin's to do the paperwork. Yeah. Mark knew there was no way that he was getting out of this alive. They spent five straight days just plying him with alcohol. Ugh. Sounds miserable. On December 14th, 1994, Danny gave Mark some sleeping pills and some liquor to wash him down with. Mark refused Mm -hmm. to take the pills, so they forced him. They wanted it to look like he'd had a midlife crisis, that he'd left everything for this hot, young (laughs) Cuban woman and then went out in flames. At 2.30 in the morning of of the 15th, December 15th, they took Mark to a spot about three blocks away from the Schlotzkys and they strapped him into the driver's seat. Danny sat in the passenger seat, stomped on the gas, aimed the car (gasps) for a pole, and jumped out right before the crash. But... Mark was still alive. So Danny poured gasoline all over him, all over the car, and then set it on fire. And then they all piled into the Camry and they drove away. But as they were driving away, 
They saw Mark jump out of the car. He hadn't been buckled in. They hadn't buckled him in. Oh my god, these people are idiots. The flames had revived him enough to stumble out of the car and towards the road. Uh, did he stop, drop, and roll? Um, I don't know. <laughs> You'd think so. But they, tur- they drove around and they tried running him over. And they managed to run him over twice, and then they sped away. Uh, get up, Michael Malloy. Really... Get out of there. I know. This is the modern day Michael Malloy. Jorge was pissed that they hadn't made sure that he was dead first, but there was nothing left to do. And they did the exact same thing to Michael Malloy. They ran over yeah. him a bunch of times. And they was, he was then he was, Yeah. And Mark also, just like our boy Michael Malloy, was not dead, just in a coma. The next thing he knew, he was waking up at Jackson Memorial Hospital, Miami's top trauma center. He was burned and bruised. Mm. His pelvis was broken. As soon as he woke up, he tried telling all of the doctors and nurses about what happened, but they just kept telling him. Yes. But they just kept telling him, no, you were drunk and you were in a bad car accident. So he finally gets a phone. I know. So he finally gets a phone to call his lawyer and tells him what happened. And his lawyer was like, you need a private investigator. So this PI named Dubois comes to the hospital, listens to his story, and he believes him. And they both realize that he's just a sitting duck in this hospital room because Danny and Jorge could come back at any moment to finish the job. Well, but there's some like security, right? No. Why would there be security? I don't know. I this is like, a hospital. I don't feel like I could just walk into a hospital and like drug somebody, but you're right. I probably could. Oh, yeah. You totally could. Yeah. You can just walk past. Yeah. I know. I was thinking about all the times I would just like wander when I would like go see my mom or bring her lunch. And it was like a different hospital. I would just like wander around until I found her. <laughs> so right. bizarre. Yeah. Or I would like stop and ask for directions and they just tell you where to go. Yeah, like just a whole building full of defenseless people that are, okay, this is terrible. We should stop. (laughs) It's really problematic. (laughs) So Dubois told the hospital that Mark had to get out of the hospital, but he was in critical condition. So Mark's brother and sister had him airlifted to New York, Mm. and he was out of the Miami hospital at 8 a.m. At 10 a.m., Danny and Jorge showed up at the hospital. (gasps) Oh! Shut up. But they were too late. Way to have that airlift money, though. I mean, most people aren't doing that. (laughs) Exactly. Mark was now safe and he could work on healing. But Mark did not report this crime to police for months. Well, no one believed him. I think that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Not only had he been put through a horrific ordeal for an entire month, but his accounts had been totally cleaned out. There was $40,000 that remained in one account because the bank had been suspicious of the signature on the check, but they had cleared the checks for $500,000 and $700,000 with no problem. (laughs) His brokerage accounts, mutual fund accounts, even his IRA was totally gone. Wait, imagine though... Only having $40,000 and that feeling broke because I, I surely cannot. Like that man is like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to eat peanut butter and jelly. And I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm so rich. I know. Like he is stressed. Come on, He's Logan, like, we're going to the Galleria. <laughs> the Galleria. We're about to eat at a P.F. Chang's. Like we're balling. And he is like st- stressed. He's like, I'm going to have to start selling platelets. exactly but still he didn't call the police according to the police anyway mark says he did call them He says that he asked his lawyer to call the police on December 31st, two weeks after he'd escaped, after he'd had time, some time to heal and to get his thoughts in order. And the police in Miami told him that he had to come to Miami if he wanted to report it. He's up in New York right now. 
Yeah, they said that you could you have to come here if you want to report that. He could absolutely not risk going to Miami when they were still after him. And also every That's ridiculous. single you can fill out a police report online. Like, yeah. Oh, this is the 90s. Well, I mean, it's Never the mind. 90s, but still, I mean, it, yes, it's ridiculous. Yeah. He could absolutely not risk going to Miami when they were still after him. And also yeah, every cool. single person apart from his family and the P.I. believed that his whole story was made up. His whole kidnapping story was made up. Six weeks after he'd been kidnapped, Mark was now living with his sister, who was bending over backwards to take care of him. I mean, he was in really rough shape, but he was still in complete agony. He had no appetite and he was down to 120 pounds. And for several nights, he was woken by terrible nightmares of being back in that warehouse. But finally, after six weeks, he was reunited with his children and his wife, Diana, who was horrified to hear what had really happened to her husband, and even more so to hear that Jorge was involved. Mark, whose biggest problem before had been a failing deli and a broken pool pump, now had bigger matters to attend to. He still had the issue with the deli, but he also had issues with the kidnappers going berserk on his credit cards, the fact that he no longer held the title of his house, and his wife's car was missing. <laughs> That's problematic. <laughs> yeah. And also that whole matter of over a million dollars disappearing from his accounts. Yeah. When the police refused to help him, Mark decided his only option was to try to negotiate with the kidnappers through a third party. He didn't think for a second that he would actually get any of his money back, but he hoped that through a negotiation, they would be stupid enough to confess to their crime, or at least give Mark some evidence that he could bring to police to prove that he was telling the truth. Yeah. In January of and he 19... knew who they were, right? They weren't like disguising themselves. Like he knew. Well, he had all duct tape all over his head. Yeah. So he never saw them, but he knew Danny's voice. Oops, and so voice. he knew that Jorge had to be involved. And then he was sh uh, right. he was certain of it when they talked about having the alarm codes to his house. Yeah. OK. In January of 1995, the private investigator, Ed Dubois, agreed to help him. While he did his research, the Sun Jim gang was busy moving into Mark's house that featured a pool, a jacuzzi, and an entertainment sy system. The house was now theirs. The paperwork was all in order. Danny introduced himself to the, new, to the neighbors as Tom and told them, oh, this is what he told them. He told them they were U.S. security forces who had confiscated the house from Mark after he'd run into legal troubles and he and his family had been deported. He said they'd be using the house for foreign diplomats from the Caribbean. And they were really good neighbors. You know, they returned tools they borrowed in a timely manner. They paid their HOA fees. They changed light bulbs for neighbors that were too high to reach. And they were living large on the $2.1 million that they'd stolen from Mark in cash, real estate, cars, credit cards, and jewels. Danny invested Jules. some of it in a surveillance package from the spy shop to upgrade the home security system. The majority of the money went to Danny, but Adrian and Jorge did all right. They got quite a bit. Carl Weeks only got $50,000 and Stevenson Pierre just 30000 And I'm pretty sure Mario Sanchez only got 1000 bucks if he ever even got paid. <sighs> While Ed Dubois was conducting his investigation into this whole thing for Mark, he found that John Meese, the owner of Sun Gym and certified public accountant, had notarized some of the documents, including the quick claim deed for Mark's house. And it just so happened, like pure coincidence, that Ed Dubois, the investigator, had known John Meese, the owner of Sun Gym, for 25 years. What? Yeah. Dubois couldn't imagine John being involved in anything like this. Like, He's an accountant. Yeah. He's a gym owner. He's a promoter of bodybuilder competitions. John Meese. Yeah, I thought he was like kind of far removed. Yeah, the top, that's you know? that is what it seemed like. Yes. John Meese had even used Dubois detective agency a few times. But a notary must witness the signing of the signatures, <gasps> which means Shut that up. to witness that he would have had to have been present in the warehouse when it was signed while Mark was being held captive and tortured. 
In all, John Meese had witnessed and notarized more than $2 million of Mark's assets. And we know that happened in the warehouse. Well, or else he's lying about, like, he notarized it without witnessing the signature and notarized it later, which is more than likely what happened. I'm sure John Meese was not standing in the warehouse watching him sign it. Right. I'm sure he notarized it later. So Ed called John Meese to hopefully arrange a meeting with him and Danny and Jorge, while Mark's lawyer worked on getting his house back and dealing with the issues with the deli. Dubois met up with John Meese to figure out how he had notarized that quitclaim deed when Mark's wife, Diana had supposedly signed it and she hadn't even been in the country on the date. But when Yeah, du- clarify that. Yeah, but when <laughs> Dubois asked, John just seemed bewildered. He said maybe it was signed before he got the papers or something screwy had happened. Mm. He said he knew Danny and Jorge. They were his employees at the gym. And so he agreed to set up a meeting with them. Dubois got two friends to come with him to the meeting. One was a criminal lawyer named O'Donnell and another a retired ATF agent named Siebert. But he needn't have bothered. Danny didn't bother showing up to the meeting. He sent Jorge in his place, who was a very not intimidating person. Dubois confronted Jorge with the ridiculous paper trail they left behind of their deeds including the life insurance documents that left everything to a woman Mark had never met, but who happened to be Danny's ex-wife. Everything they bought on the credit cards that went to Mark's house that they were living in. The deeds to the house that were signed over. Like, everything is showing that you guys, like, stole all of this. Like, I'm shocked. For all the paperwork to be in order, that would mean that all of your names are on all of the paperwork. Before Jorge could say anything else, John Meese interrupted the meeting and suggested they all meet again the next day at his office in Miami Lakes. They all agreed on 9 a.m., with the unspoken promise being that Danny would be at this next meeting. When Dubois and the ATF agent Siebert arrived for that meeting, John was nowhere to be seen, and his assistant said that she wasn't expecting him in until later. They waited two hours for him, and when John finally arrived, he seemed, like, surprised to see them there. But he said he'd call Danny and Jorge and to just give him a few minutes. As if they hadn't set up this meeting the day before. Yeah. I am, sh- I am shocked by all of these events. I know. Wait till this part. This will shock you. So John brought Dubois and Siebert into an office and, like, left them there to wait. Okay. So okay. while they're there in this office waiting, Siebert started going through the trash and there were crumpled pieces of paper in the trash. So he starts getting them out and he starts straightening out these crumpled pieces of paper and he Why? absolutely could not to see what it was. And he absolutely could not believe what he was seeing. He locked the door to the office as he and Dubois started going through it all. They were bank statements, deposit slips paychecks made out to John Meese. It all tied him to the laundering of Mark's money. What? All this crumpled up paper in the trash in this office that John Meese had just left them in. They put oh it... Oh, my God. Get a shredder, John. What? <laughs> <laughs> one, one piece of office equipment. I know. A this <laughs> Hire a shred day. They put it all in order of dates and check numbers and saw a clear money trail from Mark's accounts to Sun Jim. You know what always blows my mind? Huh? If I was a criminal, I would just set everything on fire all of the time. (laughs) Anytime I'm watching a show and I'm like, why didn't you set it on fire? Like, they can't, even shredding, like, someone could take it back to get ashes. I I need everything in ash. Just set everything on fire. I know. You should have set that whole trash can on fire. (laughs) Unbelievably, John Meese had brought them into the room that Danny Lugo used for his own office. The room where the whole scheme had been planned in the first place. Obviously, someone had been here overnight trying to get rid of the evidence, assuming that the cleaning crew would throw out the trash later. All of it. Oh, my God. Set on fire. (laughs) (laughs) The cleaning crew could go through it. I mean, I know they don't know what's going on, but still. I know. All of it was enough to build their case. Jorge finally showed up to meet with them again and told them that they were going to pay back all the money they'd taken, $1.26 million, if 
Mark would agree <laughs> that the money was for a sour business deal and that the kidnapping had never happened. No, this isn't how this works. You don't get to just like, uh, well, we'll give back what we stole, but like we're going to pretend like this whole thing didn't happen. Like you ran him over and set him on fire. <laughs> I mean, it like, only like it's and it's only working this way. They're only like thinking that they even have this power because Mark has to come to Miami to file a police report. So the police aren't even like yeah. trying to do anything about this involved. Yeah. So Dubois wrote the agreement down and they left the meeting knowing that this kind of agreement would obviously never be binding in court. Like if Mark decides to like get his one point two six million dollars back and then also file a police report. It's not like they can go to yeah, court and be like, he promised to not take us to court over yeah. this. Yeah. They went back and forth with negotiations for several weeks. But by the end of February, there had been no progress of resolving anything, except that Mark did get the deed to his house back. Finally, Dubois sent a letter to Danny, Jorge, and John Meese via an attorney that basically said, return everything by March 24th or we will go to the authorities. When Dubois and a realtor went to check on the house, they found it completely empty. They had taken everything. <sighs> oh, no doubt. I'm sure. Down to the family photos. They'd taken mm. the 10-person jacuzzi, the ceiling fans, even the decorative light switch covers. Everything. Oh, why do you need those? Yeah. Mark knew he wasn't getting any of it back or any of his money, and he thought all these negotiations were just a ploy to stall for time. Mark is like, how am I going to refill this house with $40,000? Right. And he never did get back any of the money that was taken from him, apart from his credit cards mostly being forgiven for the unauthorized charges. He told Dubois that he wanted to go to the police, but Dubois wanted to make sure that they didn't miss anything and that they had a concrete case to present. But they were suddenly ghosted. No more negotiations. I'm glad he got his credit cards cleared. Why can't we do that for all the Tinder swindler women? Well, it wasn't all on credit. They were taking out loans. Yeah. They were, mm. you know, it wasn't just like their personal credit yeah. cards. They were like taking out loans. Right. So finally, in April of 1995, Mark and Dubois did end up going to the Miami Metro-Dade Police Headquarters, less than a mile from where Mark had almost been killed. It was a prearranged oh meeting that Dubois had made with a contact he knew named Captain Porterfield. Mark went there and he told his story to the captain and then Dubois spoke, telling him about all his various meetings, the documents they'd gathered. And he had lots and lots of documents. But the captain didn't seem to ask many questions. And at the end, he told them he had to present the case to his superiors. So they agreed to meet again the next morning. Okay. When they met the next day, the captain told Mark that he and his supervisor felt that his injuries were consistent with a car accident. But that if he wanted oh. to report the robbery, he could go to the robbery unit to report that. Yeah, they are consistent with a car accident. He was in a car accident caused by other people that put him in the car. Right. Mark couldn't believe it. He showed the captain his burns from the torture. Both he and Dubois tried to argue. They told him that they had a doctor that said his injuries were not consistent with a car accident and also pointed out that new cars don't tend to blow up when they hit a utility pole. They brought up the irrefutable documents that Dubois, who used to be an FBI agent, had gathered. But all the captain said was to go to robbery. Case closed. He was basically labeled a lunatic with a crazy story who had somehow roped in Dubois, who was a well-respected professional, to vouch for him. Mark could not believe it. There was nothing left to do except go to the robbery unit, so they did. Right. They went to see Sergeant Deegan, and Mark said that as they walked to his cubicle, everyone they passed had smirks on their faces. <gasps> as they approached Deegan, she and her partner, Sergeant Myers, actually stood up and clapped with huge smirks on their faces. <gasps> like, what a, like, what a story. Right. What a performance. Yeah. So Mark went into Deegan's cubicle while Ed went to the waiting room and he asked the receptionist what, what while Dubois went to the waiting room and he asked the receptionist what the deal was. 
and she whispered to him that they'd gotten a call from the investigation division telling them to expect an Academy Award performance from Mark. <gasps> yeah. Sergeant Deegan told Wait, Mark. Who was that that would have called? The captain that they had just talked to. Oh, I thought they meant like from somewhere else. Like he just like called into <laughs> Okay. Like, right. Picked up the phone, dialed an extension. Okay. Yeah. He told him to go to robbery. And then as they were on their way to robbery, he called robbery and was like, hey. Yeah. Sergeant Deegan told Mark that no one could have survived the story that he'd spun and that he was most likely a drug dealer. And what had been done was done for revenge. Uh, I mean, are people like looking at him and like his history and they're like, I don't know. Like, like look into his background a little bit and realize that he, like, is a very successful businessman. Yeah. And, like, has nothing on his record or, like, you know. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you're a drug dealer in Miami? I mean, I I feel like those those people are known. Right. Or just all on every street corner. (laughs) Yeah. Then they asked him to take a polygraph test, but they were disappointed when he eagerly agreed to take one. Yes, please, give me a polygraph, if that'll show you that I'm telling the truth. Sergeant Deegan told him that he was lying after interrupting his story three times to ask him if he was aware that it was a crime to file a false police report. My God, get out of here, Sarge. I know. They wouldn't even look at the information that Dubois had compiled. They said they didn't want to waste resources on it course not. Mark asked her to at least follow up on Dubois' leads because these were dangerous people and more people could be hurt. He told them that if it turned out he was wasting their time, they could throw him in jail. He could not believe that they were making him feel like a criminal. Dubois even went to the Miami office of the FBI with his really thick folder full of documents, and the agent there told him that it sounded like a made-for-TV movie and declined to move forward. Oh, my gosh. I cannot believe all these people. He's got a whole folder. I know. Like, I get it if he was walking in here with, like, a, oh, this happened and I don't have any proof. And I, But he's, like, got a PI with him. He's got a whole folder. Like, no all one's these documents like that out. show this trail of money laundering. I know. And then like, I got airlifted to a whole other ass state. Right. To get out of injuries here. Like, that support. I just did that for fun. Right. And injuries that support his story. Yeah. Dubois could not believe that he was being dismissed like this at every turn. He'd assisted the police in countless cases going back 35 years. He'd never made up anything before. He'd always done a good job. He had good contacts, but he was denied all cries for help, which. Hmm. It's really unfortunate because the Sun Jim gang, they were feeling on top of the world. They had just taken Mark Schiller for nearly every penny he had, and it had been so easy. They'd made millions in just a month, and they'd completely gotten away with it. But by May of 1995, they'd already burned through it all, partying, going to strip clubs, and they were ready for their next score. They'd told Mark in the warehouse that they could just do this over and over again and run it like any other business and no one would care. And it turned out they might have been right. They were right. And this time they were going to make sure that their next Mark was really dead. And that will be next time in part two of the Sun Jim gang. Absolutely not. No. So if you cannot wait until next week for part two, then head on over to the Patreon and you'll find it there right now. Yeah, I need to know. Yes. So I didn't want to say this at the top because I didn't want to like totally give it away. But also um, a big thanks to Mark Schiller, who wrote the book Pain and Gain, Pain and Gain, The Untold True Story. So... A lot of this information in this episode was based on his memoir and from his perspective and point of view. So, you know, take that into consideration with the Mm -hmm. information with the police and all of that. But that's what he said happens. And that's how he felt about it. So that is uh, Mark's story. Because this is a part two and I'm leaving y'all a bit on a cliffhanger. We're going to skip shout outs this week, but they'll be back next week on our part two. So, yeah. 
Well, that is our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Trying to follow along. Uh, and you can also follow us on social media, on Instagram, at CreepersPod. Uh, we have our Facebook group. Go join that. That's the True Crime Creepers discussion group on Facebook. Mocap's on Twitter sometimes. Um, oh, Once I month, hear that baby, you, can buy a, you can buy a blue check now for $7.99 a month. Are you going to do it? Are you going to jump on that? Of what I should, but I, I don't know what our feelings are on Twitter anymore, so we'll see. More to come on that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's uh, oh, subscribe, rate, review, all the that good stuff. That would be awesome. Those are great ways um, to support the podcast. And uh, check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash true crime creepers. Bye, peeps and creeps.